Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast, starting our 11th year as a podcast. Robert with my co-host, Sports Radio 610, Sean Bajani. And joining us to start the show and preview the Texans-Jags game Sunday is Justin Dunk, the host of the Believe in Jaguars podcast, part of the Believe Network. Thanks for giving us a few minutes, Justin. Yeah, man, it's going to be fun. Thanks for having me on. Man, I'm not sure the average NFL fan would believe this, but the Texans have won nine of the last ten over Jacksonville. Justin, how do Jags fans look at this uh, Texans thing? Is this a rivalry after 20 years between these two teams? I think Jaguars fans are surprised to hear that stat. I'll give you an example. My co-host on the Believe in Jaguars show, Clay Harbor, former NFL tight end who played for the Jaguars, was shocked that the Texans have won five straight games in Jacksonville. He asked me if I double-checked the stat. I was like, yeah, bro, I triple-checked that thing because I was surprised too. And I think it shows that Jaguars fans need to respect the Texans a little bit more because last year when they went in there to Jacksonville, I think a lot of fans felt like it was going to be an easy win, and that wasn't the case. Obviously, Houston won that game 13-6. It was a disappointing effort from Trevor Lawrence on down, especially on offense. And obviously the Jaguars came back later in the season and got it done over Houston. But I think you can get the sense now that Jaguars fans are starting to respect Houston, no matter what their record is, and that there's an actual little bit of a rivalry here, I would say, from Duval County. Those numbers are always kind of fun. I, I love the historical uh, aspect of rivalries, but we all know this. It means little to absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of things, especially when you're looking at this Texans team that's nearly 50% turned over, new staff, new regime, the whole bit. Those players have no idea what the history is, and I'm sure most of them don't care. But in that regard, there is something, too, about going to Florida, going to Jacksonville, particularly this time, though. You know, I talked to a lot of guys in the Texans locker room today, and the sentiment is, is they feel like their backs are up against the wall. I'm interested to know from you, Justin, what you think the mentality is from the Jaguars at this point in time who gave Kansas City absolute hell. But I think, what, for the first time in a long time, they didn't score a touchdown, you know, with Trevor Lawrence as their quarterback who ended the season last year on a huge uptick into the postseason. And this year, what, what are you making of it? Jags fans are honestly disappointed with that loss to Kansas City, and rightfully so because the offense had a number of chances. There was literally a couple touchdowns that were inches away, Zay Jones and Calvin Ridley in the back of the end zone from being completed, but it didn't happen. And I think there are some Jaguars fans out there, you can see it on social media, that were expecting to win. So that's a new level for this franchise, and I think it speaks to what Doug Peterson has done with this team, especially with the expectations surrounding that group, his messaging to them. And then this year it feels a lot different because they have Calvin Ridley, who in the past has been a bona fide number one target. He showed that in week one against the Colts going over 100 yards and showed that quickly he's built a rapport with Trevor Lawrence. That changed a little bit against the Chiefs. Steve Spagnuolo, the defensive coordinator there, 
doubled him in the red zone a little bit, Peterson said. And I think they treated him as a number one target. So they need some other guys to step up. Christian Kirk did that with over 100 yards. Zay Jones kind of got knocked around. He's dealing with a knee injury. But I think that addition of Ridley has really raised expectations in Duval County and Jacksonville. And I think, honestly, around the league, my co-host on the pod, Clay Harbour, said that now the Chiefs don't seem invincible anymore. And he felt like, last year in the playoffs and then even in the regular season meeting with the Chiefs that the Jaguars weren't quite on Kansas City's level. But watching that game in week two against Kansas City, I think you can see that the Jaguars are there. They're ready to play that kind of football, but they got to step up and win those games. And I mean, they can't overlook teams like the Houston Texans either. I know Texans fans have got to be asking the question, what are the big picture concerns about Jacksonville? What Where can you know, the Texans take advantage of this team. I think the big picture concerns right now lie on the offensive line. Anton Harrison is starting at right tackle. He's a rookie. He was our first round pick in the 2023 NFL draft. And he's had to go against some stout pass rushers, namely Chris Jones in week two, who lined up a lot of the time at at right tackle. I know a lot of people usually think of Jones making a mess on the inside there, but they realized what that matchup was. Kansas City did. Spagnuolo, the defensive coordinator, and they went after it. And he was an absolute be so I think that's one of the weak spots right now Harrison has to get better and learn fast Cam Robinson is out for four games with that PED suspension he's two games through that obviously he's allowed to be back in the building with the Jags so I think they're anticipating getting him back but that offensive line overall needs to play better especially on the interior there's been some nicks and bruises with Luke Fortner and on the far side Walker Little has played fairly well at that left tackle spot but I think if you're the Texans you're looking at this offensive line saying hey we can take advantage of some of these matchups on the interior and especially on that right side. It's interesting that you bring that up. I, I spoke to Will Anderson and Jonathan Grenard today, and I was asking them about you know their approach this week, how they were attacking more of a pocket-passing type of quarterback versus a guy like Lamar Jackson or Anthony Richardson, who they'd spent the first two weeks of the season prepping for. And the one constant today was everybody talking about how fast Trevor Lawrence has been getting the football out. I think it's amongst the very fast, fastest in the league, like maybe top four, top five, if not the best. And I find it interesting because maybe this is a stark difference between an experienced play caller and offensive coordinator in, in Peterson versus what the Texans are dealing with in Bobby Slowick, who it took him a little bit to figure out the quick pass game and how advantageous that could be when you're dealing with a struggling offensive line. Is that something you've observed with the Jaguars this year that Peterson has recognized, you know, the offensive line as maybe not being up to snuff and they needed to find out a way to get the ball quickly into their playmakers' hands? He's definitely recognized that, but the interesting part around the Jaguars right now, and it's being talked about a lot, especially this week, is the fact that Press Taylor is now the full-time play caller. If we're talking about fourth down situations, Peterson needs to give the green light, but Peterson has tried to, at least for now, shuffle off those duties to Taylor. And Clay Harbour, my co-host on the Belief Pod, really feels like it should be Doug Peterson calling the plays because he felt like The Jags were just getting into a rhythm last year, Peterson and Lawrence together. So I think that's been a concerted effort from Peterson and Taylor, as you mentioned, to get the ball out quicker, knowing this offensive line is not the most stout, especially on the interior. But there is a lot of scrutiny going on right now in Duval County with what Taylor has done. And I think 
some of it is probably right, but also I think some of it is wrong because they were just a few completions and a few inches away from beating the Kansas City Chiefs, and that would change everybody's tune about Taylor early on. It's only been two games. Last year they split that duty, and I think Peterson is confident enough in it. He wants to kind of be more of an overall game manager, but you can definitely see that Lawrence has gotten the ball out quickly. I think a lot of that has to do with his comfort in the offense and also the rhythm he's developed with these three stud receivers that he's gotten, Calvin Ridley, Zay Jones, and Christian Kirk. The Colts and Chiefs, night and day defensively. No surprise, Trevor Lawrence, good week versus Colts, bad one versus the Chiefs. Where are you on Trevor Lawrence, big picture, and what do you want to see from him taking another step this year? To take that next step, he's got to prove that he can beat the Patrick Mahomes of the world head-to-head. He has not won against Patrick Mahomes. He's now 0-3 going up against him head-to-head in their careers. And I think he's got to show that in big spots, he can make those throws in crunch time when the pressure is on him. That said... He actually leads Pro Football Focus's big-time throws stat with eight this season. He's tied with Tua Tagovailoa in that category. And I think that shows you that those throws were so close against Kansas City that he probably could have had that win, but he didn't get it. So people are going to scrutinize him. And I think he really needs to prove that he can beat these elite quarterbacks head-to-head for people to view him as a top five or potentially even a top three quarterback in the NFL. You know, Justin, you've alluded to it a couple of times, just how big it would have been for the Jags to pull that victory off against the Kansas City Chiefs. Like a lot of people I imagine in Jacksonville feel like if they were able to get that win, that would have kind of solidified them to this point amongst the very best teams in the AFC. Like they're ready to play with the big boys. A win against the Texans this week isn't going to do that, but it's a necessary one. I understand that from a Jacksonville standpoint of view. Where do you see an opportunity? And I guess guess it's largely contingent upon what things look like and how it shakes down against the Texans on Sunday. But where do you see that opportunity coming from for Trevor Lawrence, for Doug Peterson and the Jaguars to get that victory to kind of write home about, if you will? I think they're going to have a couple of feature games coming up here right after this game at home. They're going to go over and play two straight games in London. One of those games is going to be against the Bills and Josh Allen, who I think a lot of people around the NFL would say, arguably, and I think there's certainly an argument there, is that next quarterback after Patrick Mahomes. So that's going to be an opportunity. But Lawrence also has to show that he can beat the teams that he's supposed to beat. And that's how they're viewing the Texans this week. And they have to have respect for them because they lost to Houston last year at home. So he needs to be consistent when he's playing the teams that they're supposed to beat and play really well. And then when he gets that matchup with Josh Allen across the pond, he's got to win that game for people to start really talking about him legitimately being at the top of the AFC and potentially the NFL at the quarterback position. Let me ask you about just uh, the big picture for this game and and their favored Jags are by nine Sunday against the mash unit. That is the Texans offensive line. Is it good enough for the Jags just to win with their history against the Texans or, 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 you know, is it, they need to send a message or something. Is there a message? It's gotta be like, Hey, we're, we're better than the old Jags. (laughs) It's difficult. As you guys know, in divisional matchups, right? Because the teams know each other so well. And I think with the history and the stats that we talked about off the top, the Jags losing streak at home to the Texans, 
I think they just need to get a win to get to two and one. But there also is, to your second point there, the idea of sending a message. I think the message has largely been sent from the Jags defense through the first two games. They have played well enough to be a two and O team. When you hold Patrick Mahomes under 20 points, that's very rare, especially with Travis Kelsey on the field. They set the offense up with some short fields that the Jaguars were not able to convert on. So I think that it's just about getting a win because if Houston comes in there and somehow pulls an upset, there's going to be a lot of people freaking out in Jacksonville about the Jaguars. You know, Justin, I haven't looked at a whole bunch of Jacksonville Jaguar tape yet. I have seen them, you know, here and there. But one thing that I do know and have noticed a little bit is just how physical and attacking their defense seems to be. They've created a lot of turnovers to this point. I think six or seven is the number through two games. And so I'm looking at that and I'm looking at a guy like C.J. Stroud, who hadn't thrown an interception yet has, for the most part, taken really good care of the ball. He's got a couple of fumbles, but, you know, you can make the argument it really wasn't his fault as he's had massive trouble with the offensive line as well. Interested to hear your take on what sort of challenge this is going to be for the Texans in terms of what the Jags do well defensively. And if they could take away maybe the best part of the Texans' offense right now, which coincidentally, is their short pass game, their quick pass game, the ability to get the ball into their playmakers' hands. They made a lot of hay off of it this last weekend, albeit too little too late for them. But how do you see that shaking out on Sunday? I think, first of all, up front, you talk about Josh Allen and Trayvon Walker, fast, physical dudes off the edge. Andy Reid, the Chiefs head coach, referred to those players as being phenomenal. So that shows you the level of respect that those guys have around the league. Allen had a single-game career high, three sacks in week one, suffered a shoulder sprain in week two, but should be able to fight through it. And Trayvon Walker has already created some issues and some quarterback pressures this season. I'm sure they're looking at that stat. 11 quarterback sacks the Texans have given up the most in the league so far through two weeks and licking their fingers thinking, hey, we can stuff the stat sheet here. So it starts with those two guys up front creating mismatch problems, getting after the quarterback and even affecting the run game. And you look at Foyer Olukun, He's a guy that led the NFL in tackles last year, a guy that really brings the energy for this defense as well. And then Devin Lloyd, who's beside him in the middle there in this 3-4 setup, he's had a bunch of tackles as well. He was trash-talking with Travis Kelsey last week. So up front, they're fast and they're physical and they get after it. And in the back end, it's really no different. These guys fly around. Tyson Campbell might be one of the most underrated cornerbacks in the entire NFL. On the other side, Darius Williams is no slouch. Either these guys will get up and be physical, they'll press you, they'll play off a little bit, they'll mix it up, they'll also come downhill, make tackles in the run game. And I think Andre Sisko has been really great for the Jags defensively in the first couple of games. Had a great leaping interception against Mahomes there to get the Jags the ball back. So he's a dude that has played really well. And he's, again, another guy that will come down and play physical. So this unit, I think, is much more comfortable in year two in Mike Caldwell's defense. And you can see it with the way that they're playing fast. They're not thinking like maybe they were at times last year, especially early in the season. They're just reacting now and comfortable with the scheme. Is the Calvin Ridley you guys are seeing – 
the Calvin Ridley that we saw a couple, three years ago, is he the same since the suspension? There's been some flashes there. Obviously, the standout was that week one game. Eight catches for 101 yards and a touchdown. Had some phenomenal snags from Trevor Lawrence in that game. Wasn't quite the same in week two. He was still targeted, but not quite at the rate that he was in week one. Only had two catches, I believe it was, for 32 yards. But there's a lot of focus on him, which opened things up for Christian Kirk, who had a single-game career high, 11 catches on 14 targets for 110 yards in Week 2. Kirk's usage went up in terms of the snap count in Week 2, and I think what we're seeing with Ridley is that he's going to either draw attention or he's going to be able to beat you one-on-one. So I think he has gotten back close to that receiver that we saw before everything that's taken place with him, but... We need to see him do it consistently from a production standpoint. And I think if you see guys like Christian Kirk or Zay Jones or even Evan Engram, the outstanding tight end, have big weeks, weeks, part of that will be because of the attention that Ridley's getting. And if he gets one-on-one coverage, I mean, he's probably going to come down with it and make a play. Their run game, Travis Etienne, uh, we know his capabilities, but you know they haven't seemed to be able to put things together yet through the first two weeks of this season. You have to respect anybody that's in the backfield for whom the Texans are going against. I mean, a Jonathan Taylor-less Colts team, uh, you know, at one point averaged 7.1 yards per carry on the ground, I think it was in the first half this last weekend. I mean, they did whatever they wanted to against this uh, uh, bleak Texans run defense. What what are you kind of expecting to see uh, offensively in terms of the run game for the Jags? How well do you think – Uh, they match up with what the Texans have or rather have not shown uh, in terms of their run defense to this point. That's certainly an area that I think the Jaguars will look to exploit. But those guys in the middle, Ben Barch, the left guard, Luke Fortner, the center, and Brandon Sheriff, the right guard, they got to play better. Sheriff has been pretty good, but Barch and Fortner in particular need to play better. ETN had 12 carries for 40 yards in week two. That was much different than his week one game. But even his touchdown run in week one against the Colts to kind of put that thing on ice, he was stacked up on the interior and then was patiently waiting, kind of sliced off tackle there to score. So I think the Jags would like to run the ball more. There's been some questions about Peterson and Taylor perhaps not doing that as much in the week two game against the Chiefs, particularly when they got down to the one late in the game there, Trevor Lawrence on what looked like a zone read, pulled it and tried to get in, but got stacked up for a loss there. So I think the fans would like to see them run it a little more as much as we're in this pass happy era of the NFL with all the targets that the Jaguars do have. And they were able to do that in week one because they were in front, at least at the end of that ball game. So I think they're going to want to attack that Texans run defense after seeing what the Colts were able to do to them a week ago. Each end's the guy to do it. He's very explosive. And they have Tank Bigsby, this rookie running back, that's a more physical runner. He's going to put his shoulders down, not to say that ETN's not, but I think those are the types of carries that they want to have on Bigsby to keep ETN fresh. So I think you'll see a healthy dose of ETN with Bigsby mixed in. How do you see this one going? Do you feel like it's going to be a close one, a typical stuck-in-the-mud Jags-Texans, or you feel like this could be a, a, a real chance at a blowout? I think there's a chance for a blowout there, and I'm not just saying that because I cover the Jaguars. I want to be unbiased, so I want to stress that with you guys. And part of the reason I say that is because Peterson said in his press conference today that 
it's enough talking about being early in the season and having any more excuses for the offense. He wants to be focused on the now. And I think we're going to see Lawrence have a bounce back performance. Some of these receivers like Zay Jones, I think if he's on the field, he's kind of dealing with a knee injury, should have a bounce back performance. He had a great touchdown catch in week one. And I think ETN and that offensive line have been hearing about it a bunch. They're going to be fired up to show that, hey, we can get it done. We are supposed to be the team that's favored to win the AFC South division, and we need to step up. So I see this as a Jaguars win as long as they're focused and don't overlook Houston before going across the pond. They need to realize that there is some talent, and you guys know this well, young talent on this Houston roster. But I think the Jaguars, if they're focused, can win this by a couple touchdowns. Remind us about your podcast and and how to connect with uh, you on social media. So in case any maybe Texans fans want to reach out to you and ask a question about the Jags or something. For sure. Thanks, man. Appreciate you doing that. So the Believe in Jaguars show, we do at least – twice a week with my colleague Clay Harbor there, former NFL tight end. He played for the Jaguars, was with the Eagles when Doug Peterson was the head coach there. So he knows the league from a very unique perspective. You can catch it on all of your major podcast platforms. And then also, if you want to get at me on Twitter or X, whatever we're calling it these days, it's at jdunk12. We'll be happy to talk ball anytime, day or night with you guys. So I really appreciate you having me on and breaking down the matchup this week. Hey, you were fantastic, Justin. Thank you, man. Thanks so much for doing this. Great stuff from Justin, Sean. And before we keep rolling, talking a little bit more Texans, just a reminder to check out yesterday's 10th anniversary show. Yes, this is our first show in the 11th year of Houston Sports Talk. My old co-host, Stephen Kern, RG Seal, helped me look at our favorite memories and moments and go behind the scenes. I recommend watching this one on YouTube if you're an audio listener. Trust me on that one. There's a little uh, Easter egg for you, a little nugget. But, uh, Sean, what's your feeling about Tunsil, Petrie, and Jimmy Ward this week? Are we going to see any of those three guys play? I think it's very much in flux uh, at this point. It was good news that Laramie Tunsil was back on a practice field today along with Jimmy Ward. Uh, Jalen Petrie, however, was not. He was a DNP today. A surprise one today, which I didn't notice when I was out there because didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him, uh, was no Denzel Perryman. He didn't practice today. Uh, Tavier Thomas, the obvious one, too, with, no, with the broken hand. But for Tunsil, uh, D'Amico did clarify today that it is a knee, not knees, that is plaguing Tunsil to this point. Um, and he basically just said, like, we'll see how he progresses this week. And that's it. He was uh, a limited participant uh, in practice today, as was Jimmy Ward. I saw Jimmy. He was moving around pretty well. Laramie was on a, a sled for a little bit of the time that uh, I was able to view him during the media portion. So I think it's in flux. Uh, Jimmy, if you put a gun to my head and said, one of these guys is going to play, who's it going to be? I'd say it should be Jimmy Ward. He got hurt against the Saints. He's had a lot of time, you know, three, four weeks to, to kind of heal up with that hip. And uh, it, it's just time. The secondary needs him in the worst way right now. And look, not to say that the offensive line doesn't need Laramie Tunsil, because my God, they do. They need any healthy body, any really good healthy body they could get. But uh, I, it's 
it's only Wednesday. Ask me again on Friday or Saturday, man, what I think about Tunsil. And, you know, unfortunately, we'll know by then with the uh, final injury report. D'Amico said soon was the quote that I heard on Jalen Petrie. I don't know what soon means. Uh, I didn't interpret that as meaning this week anytime. I could be totally wrong. Um, Nobody really knows, you know, how long it takes a bruised lung. I mean, that's not like, uh, you know, a contusion or a soft tissue thing that somebody's dealing with or a broken hand or bone of any sort. It's a bruised lung. The guy was coughing up blood. And at the end of the day, you got to feel right internally. You got to make sure you can have your wind. You got to make sure you got your energy in. Uh, look, him not being there on the practice field, I mean, that's the first strike, right? It's Wednesday. If he's not out there tomorrow, that's strike two. And if he's not out there Friday, there's strike three. You know your answer at that point in time. But D'Amico did say um, dude's been active in terms of being there for team meetings. Even though he's not dressed on game day this past week and not at practice today, he's out there. Um, is what I took from it. Now, he's probably getting some kind of treatment when the media portion was out there. We didn't see him, but maybe he comes out later, you know, for the latter half. The point is, D'Amico is extremely appreciative of the energy and the fact just the guy is making a point to be wherever the team is. And he's still being that leader, that vocal guy that this team needs right now. I want to get to the Astros in a couple of minutes, but a couple of questions for you, Sean. Number one, Does it mean anything to you that C.J. Stroud is fourth in total passing yards right now? Yeah, um, it does, of course. Um, Not because there was any doubt that he wasn't going to be an accurate guy. I mean, just watching him through training camp and workouts during the preseason, I could have told you that. So that was never really a concern. But it's more impressive because of the receivers. And the way that Bobby Slowick and Ben McDaniel, their passing game coordinator, have found to get Nico Collins the ball, include Tank Dell immediately week two into an offense in which he was literally an afterthought. Uh, They can say that he was a part of the game plan or not. When you're targeted four times and you have that sort of athletic ability, you can't tell me he was a part of the game plan. Um, But the, the quick nature in which they were able to kind of right that wrong, and there's still a few more that they need to correct. Um, but it speaks more to just what receivers are actually on this team and how maybe we were slide, they, we slided them a little bit. Nico Collins has clearly taken that next step. He's shown that he's not just a boundary receiver. Um, he can gain separation. He can get through contact. Uh, Robert Woods, uh, you know, same thing. They use him and Nico very similarly in terms of finding him up the middle of the field. Uh, the separation that Woods has been able to get two years removed from ACL. Uh, I think it speaks more to those guys and the uh, pass game plan from uh, Bobby Slook, which I think you need to give him a little bit of credit uh, to this point. He still has a lot more work to do and a lot more to show offensively in terms of that creativity and personnel usage. But I think it all starts to look a little bit better, too, when you have, uh, uh, you know, your projected 2.0 starting offensive line out there. Yeah, I guess what I meant was, does it mean anything to you? Is There's probably people out there that are saying, hey, C.J. Stroud's numbers are inflated because he's playing in a lot of trash time, you know, that, that he's going to get yeah. prevent defenses. Yeah, well, I mean, go back and watch the game against the Colts. Uh, I mean, maybe late, you know, um, on that last drive, they were in prevent, but Hell, they were still bringing the pass rush in the third quarter, uh, late third quarter, early fourth quarter. They were still bringing it. 
So, I mean, don't talk to me about garbage time. Garbage time in terms of like, yeah, look at the look at the scoreboard, but garbage times in what in terms of what the defense is actually showing you. I don't want to hear that. And hell, he was carving the Colts up, you know, with uh, with with the short pass game, the crosser, the twenty eight yard seam route run by Nico Collins. It was on the second drive of the game. Um, so I think the most important thing, the most encouraging thing, the thing that you have to be excited about uh, your quarterback for is yeah. He's putting up the stats, and he's got better numbers than the other two court rookie quarterbacks that are playing right now. And he's making uh, something out of nothing wide receivers on this team. Uh, maybe Nico Collins is the one guy. Maybe Robert Woods is the other guy that you didn't really expect that much from. But, hell, he's at least for one game, he's showing you everything that you thought Tank Dell could be. Now you just get Tank into a little bit of space and let him create some yak on his own. Then we're talking about something. You talk about Nico and Robert Woods again and again. And just to remind people, Nico is number five in receiving yards. Robert Woods is number 20 in the NFL, two top 20 guys. And even if people don't believe Stroud's numbers represent him because it is in catch-up ball and it is in junk time, two Texans receivers in the top 20 is legit considering we expected CJ would be dumping passes to running backs and tight ends as a rookie with a banged up offensive line, but he's not. Yeah. And maybe that was just uh short sighted of us um, and looking at the name and not really thinking in more of a football sense. I mean, I kind of, you know, corrected that mindset for me personally after week one, where it was pretty evident that this was going to be a bad situation for the first four uh, four weeks with the offensive line in the shape that it's in. You're going to have to keep those tight ends on the damn field, not as pass catchers. I mean, you can find little creative ways and, you know, in, in times of desperation, catch up ball, garbage time, whatever you want to call it. CJ found Dalton Schultz a few times. Okay. But you're keeping those tight ends to chip, to block, to do whatever you can to give CJ a, a tick more time to look downfield. I don't think he threw any passes, uh, uh, 20 plus yards down the field this last week and he's right there amongst the bottom feeders in terms of quarterbacks that have taken deep shots well there's a reason for that it's not because they don't have the dudes to do it with it's because you don't have the dang time right um and look I, I there's there's numbers out there i think i saw a stat um courtesy of next gen stats a couple of days ago that actually says bajani well you're an idiot C.J. Stroud has actually had uh, some of the most time to throw in terms of a quarterback. Well, those numbers to me, I, I don't know the criteria of them, but I think you could probably excuse some of that away just given the fact that it's taken on average. Okay, so when you have an average of like two seconds to throw the stinking ball, and it's not because you want to throw it in two seconds, it's just you got to get the dang ball out versus – Having the ball and then having to move around and elude pass rush in the pocket, outside of the pocket, all those things, maybe it takes all that into account. But just trust your eyes. You know what you're seeing. You know he doesn't have a whole lot of time to throw the ball. Just That's where I think you got to give credit to Bobby Slowick and Ben McDaniel and C.J. Stroud himself, these receivers, all of the above, for being able to adapt, understand the situation at hand, and trust that quick pass game. It worked really beautifully against the Colts. Uh, when it needed to, and certainly you'd like to have seen him do that on the first series and have a much better start. But I'll say this, Robert Woods brought up a really good point, and I wanted to get to Justin uh, on this, but I figured we could talk about it anyway amongst us. 
Robert Wood said something a couple days ago that's really interesting to me in that, hey, <laughs> the Jags are going to look and see exactly how we're getting the football. CJ's getting rid of the football very quickly. Our, our quick pass game is there. If they bring an extra, you know, DB into the box, you know, a walk down safety, take away the middle of the field, take away some of those slants that they're able to hit Tank on or Robert on, um, what are the Texans going to do then? What does that open up? Well, theoretically, it could open up the run game for the Texans. And it's just that pass-run balance that Bobby Slowick has got to have an immediate pulse on to try and exploit that and maybe taking calculated deep shots down the field. Maybe he needs to think about it in terms of using the pass to set up the run instead of vice versa, which is not sure. working at all. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned that too because that's something that uh, – I really kind of find fascinating and I'd really like to talk to more people about it. And it's been a common thread of questions asked this week by the media to D'Amico Ryan's today to CJ Stroud. He was asked specifically that his thoughts on using the pass to open up the run. And he'd said something that would make sense more if the Texans did it more. Um, sure. If you're having success throwing the football, then the defense has to respect it. But you also can't be obvious in the run as well. If you can show the propensity and make good on it in the first on first and second downs in passing situations, uh, rather than the obvious of third and longs, then sure, you can run the ball. But how are you getting to the pass? Are we going to see more play action? more bootleg from the Texans this week to maybe set that up because maybe that's something Bobby's willing to explore that, you know, look, I know people crushed me after week one, Damian Pierce didn't have but 11 carries. And then week two, we were getting our throats stomped and people were crushing me for sticking to the run too late. Um, how can he find that balance? I think that's one way. Um, can you find creative ways, timely ways to run bootleg to run more play action um, and at least just make those linebackers uh, just wait a tick tick longer um, and have that doubt in their mind because to me that's part of the reason why we haven't seen Damian Pierce really be Damian Pierce and how patient he's been as a runner um, I'd like to see him change gears a little bit too and just get back to that one cut and go guy lower that shoulder because if the Texans are as confident in Devin Singletary as they said they are then hell, you've got him for a reason, and it's time for him to step up and have some <laughs> productive carries as well. If that's the case, ah, no thanks. Um, not impressed with Devin Singletary at this well, point. He ain't Rex Burkhead, so you know, pick one. <laughs> it's time yeah. to play Russian roulette between those two guys. Uh, he hasn't looked much better than Rex Burkhead so far. <laughs> um, He's like ten years younger, so I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> well, ten years younger, but same talent. So I don't know if that it helps you at all. Let me. I want to ask you, uh, was Slowick asked at all about the pace? And I, what I'm talking about is, you know, they, they, they made this big emphasis on the pace. You're down three scores and you have a seven and a half minute drive. I mean, that's not pace. You know, you, you got to move faster than that when you're down three scores. It, it, it seemed like the pace was, you know, spoken about by D'Amico, like, oh, it's way better, but. I didn't see it much. Well, as far as, you, you know, know, I don't know. In terms of pace, uh, I don't know that D'Amico actually used that word. It was 
what, what he was talking about after week one in Baltimore was the pre-snap operation, you know, getting in and out of the huddle, getting to the line, getting the play calls in time, which they did a much better job of uh, against the Colts. They did a really good job of that. Now, in terms of actually running a hurry up offense and seeing, actually seeing some type of urgency from them, uh, late in the game, uh, in the second half period. Yeah, you're right. It wasn't there, but I, the only, by the way, to answer your initial question, no, Bobby Sloak was not asked about that because we're not going to get a chance to talk to him until tomorrow afternoon. Thursday afternoon is when they make the coordinators. Oh, play. that's right. That's right. But I will ask him if somebody else does not. Um, but I just – the only possible excuse that I could create and maybe imagine Bobby thinking um, in the second half against the Colts is – and mind you, case in point, the Texans at one point in time held the ball for 13 minutes out of a possible – 19 game minutes, I believe, in the second half. It was something thereabouts. I, 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 know, what you, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, they, they, you know, the, the, the offense for the Colts was on the field so much the first few minutes of the third quarter that, you know, you want to give your defense a chance to rest. You don't want to have a quick three and out and all that. Yeah. But I, I just hate that. It's one of the things I hate about NFL coaches. I hate that mentality. The mentality should be, you know what? This drive, we're going to figure it out. And we're still trying to win this darn game. We're not trying to make it close. We're not trying to cover. We're not trying to look good for the fans and for the national people that, hey, we kept this game close. We're trying to win the darn game. Yeah, and look, I I, I think to make your point even further, like, and I know you hate that philosophy and, you know, gun to my head, I I, I guess I'd have to agree, too. Maybe I don't need a gun to my head, but um, – <laughs> You know, go back and look at that game. Um, the Texans were in a situation where I think they ended up going for the field goal. I think that was the initial 46-yard attempt, which was blocked or just horribly missed by Kaimi. And they got bailed out because either or, it wasn't a good field goal. So they took a five-yard penalty. It becomes a 51-yard attempt. They kicked the field goal there. Um no, I'm sorry. It wasn't even that. It was the the touchdown drive um, before that. They had the opportunity to make the decision. Do we go for two here or do we wait? Well, would you rather know early that what you have to do is, here's the case, let's lay it out, or would you rather just, you know what, we're going to chip away, chip away, just get points, and if we have to get two at the end to tie this thing, we'll make that decision and determination then. It's kind of that calculated decision. Do you want to know now or do you want to know later? And I think the Texans, by slowing things down, and I'm not going to say they slowed it down. Rather, they just didn't deviate from their normal operating procedure, right? They were just trying to get to that point after looking so horrible um, and discombobulated on the road, albeit, in Baltimore. But I, I think that was kind of part of the decision. And I'm just grasping at straws here, but I think it's really the only logical explanation to to not see that urgency uh, from the offense. But here's another idea. You know, who was the first guy to call out the offense, to call out the pre-snap operation, to call out the fact that, you know what, we need to get plays in. Well, D'Amico ain't calling plays in to C.J. Stroud. D'Amico is not having anything to do with the offense, but he called Bobby Sloak out, not directly. He called C.J. Stroud out, not directly, but the entire offense after week one and said, hey, it needs to be better. And you know what? Against the Colts, it was better. 
And maybe D'Amico in, in, in closed doors, and I'm sure he's addressed this, maybe he did indirectly as well already when he's talking about energy, enthusiasm, no urgency. Well, if I would apply at least one of those things to anything not named his defense, which needs all of that and then some, it's the offense. Show a little bit more urgency when the game is still gettable, you know, and you have time to do it and you feel this good about your quarterback. Let's see the urgency then. Sean, who's your favorite Astros pitcher right now? Is it Hunter Oberholzer, Christian Lucas Harrell, or Jose Urquidy Paulino? Uh, it's bad, man. It's bad. It's it's a dumpster fire. Don't ask me these types of questions. You know, Astro fan recency bias is a thing. <laughs> there ain't nobody who I like right now. Um, I guess gun to my head, I'd have to say uh, Brian Abreu. I mean, that dude's on one hell of a tear. Uh, I think 22, 23 consecutive outings without giving up a run. So. Hector Naris. Hector Naris. I love him. I love him. I, I, I get down with some Hector Naris, um, Naris, whatever you want to call him. Uh, I think those are the only two cats in the bullpen with an ERA sub three, and it's in the low twos. So, yeah, I'll take it. Yeah, get out on your Ryan Presley stock, and it might be time to say, I'm worried about Presley, man. It's uh, It's been it, – it just – the whole year – Sean, it just feels like Ryan Presley just he can't get a simple one, two, three inning. It's, well, it's like it's always a painful, even if he gets the save. Yeah. I feel like I've got to go get my roll on deodorant and reapply it. Yeah, he's got to work. That's the thing. I mean, you hit the nail on the head, like six, six blown saves in the grand scheme of things. Uh, when when if he had six blown saves last year, you're not batting an eye, like unless it's like a bunch of towards the latter part of the season and you're looking at this guy to be the dude to close games out in the postseason for you that's kind of the case now though too if you think about it he's blown three saves in his last 12 opportunities and that that's a concern you you want to be playing your best ball you talk about it more so with hitters than anything else you want to be swinging the bat seeing the ball the best you know ahead of the postseason well same thing with presley you want to be throwing uh your best going into the playoffs right now that's even in doubt um big win on wednesday uh, during the day, that means they're guaranteed to not relinquish first place. So you can hang your ad on that one for one day's time. But they just got to start getting more of the expected contributions out of their dudes on a consistent basis. And that's that just hasn't been the case. Um, Ryan Presley, it takes a lot of work for this guy to get the job done. You're right. I mean, even against some of the weaker opponents, he's not going out there and spinning, you know, a 15 pitch inning and, you know, fireworks and it's time to go home, fellas. It's, it's not like time. his stuff doesn't look still electric. I don't well, get it. I watched him point it out. Did you see this the other night um, after his most recent blown saves, save a couple, a uh, couple of days ago, somebody pointed out that he's tipping his pitches. So did you see this at all? I, I think I did hear that. Yeah. Okay. Did, but did you see it? And do you know why? No, I did it's, not. So um, some dude okay, on Twitter found this video and hit one of my former colleagues up about it. And I saw it on his tweet. And so I went and I did my own digging. Damn it. It's hard to find like Brian Presley highlights that show everything <laughs> i had to go back <laughs> on my dvr and freaking look at whole games and i i did find it so i noticed and it's with this guy originally i wish i could remember his name on twitter at least i could credit him um but he noticed presley tapping with his left foot 
So he would tap. Now he always taps. Like it, uh, the tap is a thing, but he'll usually tap like once if it's off speed, but it's like a repetitive tap if it's a fastball. And that's legit. I went and I looked at a number of those and it is for real. That's what he was doing. So pay attention to that the next time he takes the mound and see if that's something that's corrected. Yeah. Somebody said that people were sitting on his slider, which is, looks like an electric. I'm like, how do you sit on a, on a slider? Even if you're sitting on it, it seems like it would be really hard. I look at it and I go, you could tell me that was coming all day. And even if I was like a legitimately great major league baseball hitter, it, it just seems like it would be really hard to hit. Well, and look, uh, there, there are other little things that kind of go into that. It sounds preposterous, right? Because, yeah, we watch these games all the time. His slider looks like it stays in the zone, you know, for 55 feet and then just <laughs> it's out. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Especially especially to a right-hand, uh, excuse me, a left-handed hitter. That thing is freaking sick. Um, and, hell, you know, a right-handed hitter, uh, it, it, that's hard to see that vantage point just at breaking, you know, in the way that it does so late. But you got to think about this, too. Okay, so you can tip. Okay, so guys can sit on a particular pitch uh, when they know that they're tipping. You know it's coming, but damn, he can throw it for a strike, and it sure does look good to hit. What about the sequencing? You know, what about guys taking a brief little glance at where the catcher's set up? Because that can tell you a lot as well on, you know what? This guy in this situation, he likes to show in the zone, but... 85% of the time it lands as a ball and you go up there with that knowledge, at least in the back of your head, you're not married to it or by any stretch, but you go up there with that knowledge in the back of your head and it makes it just that much easier to yes. In fact, sit on those filthy sliders that Ryan Presley has the propensity to throw, which you saw like he went viral here regionally a couple of weeks ago with the fastest spin rate of a slider, I think, or at least, top three, top five, whatever it was, of a slider in Major League Baseball since they started charting this crap. And it was sick. That thing stayed in the zone. It looked like all the way till it sniffed home plate and just darted on the back ankle of a left-handed hitter. It was filthy. Man, I don't know if it ticks you off, but I just get so tired of these managers that just get so caught up in the lefty-righty thing. It doesn't even matter what the stats are. And the thing that just drove me nuts And, you know, we talk about Dusty and his lineups and all of the, you know, kind of crap with that. And I I, I get it. This this year isn't about the lineups. It's about the starting pitching. I I know good and well. And, you know, the lineups, though, it might matter if it's a, you know, if it's one game that decides, you know. It matters more when the pitching stinks, though, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, and, And when it's September and you're still you know, tied with everybody towards the end of the season. Yeah, it's going to matter that one bad lineup that cost you one game. But let me, I, I just got to talk about, so in, the, in, this, in this game on Wednesday, Wednesday afternoon, when you and I are talking, the one that you and I just saw, he starts Martin Maldonado, which of course drives everybody nuts, but at least Christian Javier was, or uh, Yonder, I'm sorry, Yonder Diaz was in the lineup. At least Yonder Diaz was in the lineup. So, it goes to the end of the game and Martin Maldonado comes up. So he goes, okay, I'm going to pinch hit for Martin Maldonado, which of course with Yonder Diaz in the game, that means that's the pitching spot. If it goes to extra innings. And I know if the Astros go to extra innings, they're going to lose anyway, but I'm like, okay, I guess it's now the pitcher's spot. So now you're going to have to bring in your, you know, your back end of the bench guys uh, mm-hmm. towards the end of the, 
end of the extra innings, but it wasn't even that that drove me nuts. It's the fact that he pinch hit for John Singleton, who's been terrible, instead of Mauricio Dubon because there was a right-hander on the hill. And here's the <laughs> other thing that drove me crazy is the reason why Dubon wasn't available right there, and I don't know if he would have gone to him, was because he was pinch running Jordan Alvarez, who's a really great base runner. And, you know, I get it. It was supposed to be his day off. But guess what? We needed you for one inning. And you could run the bases just fine. And I know Mauricio Dubon would be better, but I would much rather have Mauricio Dubon at the plate when you're down to your final outs yeah. than John Singleton. And I just hate the lefty, righty. Just it, it just drives me. Look at the baseball card, Dusty. Sometimes you do have to look at the baseball card. And the baseball card says, Mauricio Dubon this year is a better hitter against everybody than John Singleton. Well, you're bringing Singleton up in that at, at that point to put good wood on the ball, right? I don't know what his numbers say in terms of like, you know, batting average on balls in play, hard hit percentage into outs, whatever. Hindsight, I don't know what the exit velocity was. I actually wasn't watching at the time. I was listening. Apparently, he uh, peed on one. Uh, and it found somebody's glove on a diving attempt, right? He hit the ball hard. I just, my thought process, I, I wanted to drive off the road when I heard Robert Ford on the radio broadcast say that Singleton was pinch hitting for Maldonado in that instance because I was like, hold on, you're taking a 169 hitter and he's going to hit for at least a 191 hitter, but I'm like, I'll die on this hill. Martin Maldonado has much more of an opportunity to hit one out of the freaking ballpark than John Singleton does. He's got two freaking home runs, and it, he hit those two home runs in the same game like the first three days he was in town with his ball club. Like, he hadn't done squat since. I was more mad about the fact that they just decided to hit crap for crap. And I get it. He hit the ball hard anyway, but that is the one instance where I was like, you know what? Here's one opportunity I'm giving Maldi because I trust, like, versus the alternative, you have him and Kessinger, you know, in there, and Brantley, who's clearly unavailable, not once, but for a fact, like, guaranteed passed over two times today. There was, that means he was not available to swing a baseball batter to do anything today outside of look pretty wearing the uniform. I'm trusting Maldonado more than I am John Singleton to go hit the ball hard and give me a chance at winning a football uh, a football game. <laughs> Give me a chance at winning the baseball game. How about Greg Kessinger? I mean, how about him? He was going to have to hit when the pitcher spot came up, you know, later. Well, I, <laughs> That's I would scary enough. He hadn't done squat either. Yeah, I would still, I'd probably take him though over John Singleton and, and Martin Maldonado. Oh, I'd, well, I'd take him over Singleton, I think, just because he's young and you, know, you never know. I mean, a kid could get going, but I mean, hell, I mean, he, you need 10 more years to figure out if John Singleton can hit a baseball at the major league level. I'm, come on, this guy will not be here next year. And uh, the fact that he's going to be a part in some way, shape, form, or fashion of hopefully a postseason run for the Astros is pretty pretty damn unthinkable. Like, they've got some dudes on this team. Like, you're talking about a team that is trying to win back-to-back -back World Series. Hell, it's just trying to get into the damn playoffs now. But you got dudes like John Singleton and uh, – Freaking Parker Mashinsky and Gage and all these dudes on the mound that they've kind of, they don't look like a team that, 
<laughs> they're sending dudes out there. They don't look like dudes that are trying to be defending World Series champions. I'm just saying that. It, I ain't got a good vibe. I ain't got a good feeling right now, even after the win today. Well, I mean, those guys are back. I mean, hell, the lineup is just, it's loaded with MVPs. I mean, or or top three MVP guys. I mean. I know, you, I know. You know, you know, it's still loaded. And and your pitching staff, you know, it's it's, how can you get mad? at the Astros when the, you know, everybody is just played to like the worst that they possibly, I mean, literally Christian Javier, you know, rest in peace. I mean, I don't know what happened to him, but he's, it seems like his career might be over with, with his family. If he's not hurt, like what else could it be? Hey, I look, mean, I don't know. Go back and look today, Wednesday, five innings, really good baseball. Right. Um, I feel like, let's see, it's now one, two, three, four, five, six, six out of his last nine outings. You can't count them as quality starts because the sucker can't get out of the fifth inning. Can't get into the sixth, rather. Get it out of the fifth, but he can't get into the sixth. One reason, but, because that fastball, he just can't get the third strike because that fastball is not the same. Understood, understood. But here's where we're at, Robert. You got to roll with, you know, who's going to give you the best chance to win on a consistent basis. Christian Javier is slowly becoming that guy, you know, I think ahead of Hunter Brown at this point, um, in terms of guys you feel most comfortable with, not named Justin Verlander and Fromber Valdez, and you feel comfortable with those guys because, well, that's their names. And, you know, they've got a track record that extends beyond this season and, you know, last season, rather. Um I'm not saying you should feel great about it, but if you feel as good as you say you do, and I'm speaking in generalities to all the fans out there, but about this bullpen, then hell, give me the guy that's going to battle through five innings and keep it close versus a guy who, yeah, can show you that he can get into the seventh inning on a pretty regular basis, but at what cost? Because he could implode at any point in time and, you know, put up a, a five or four spot in the inning and completely get you out of a ball game. So I don't know. I you're It's nut cutting time. You got maybe one, two starts left to Christian Javier before uh, the regular season's over. If he continues to do this, you have to take it. Did I miss something? Is there something wrong with Spencer Arigetti? Because he's your best pitcher uh, at the AAA level. And I just thought he would at least have gotten a shot in September with a pitching staff that's in shambles right now. I don't get that. I mean, you're as lost on it as I am. Um, I don't know. That, that's a that's a hell of a question for Dana Brown, to be honest with you. I don't know if anybody's asked him about Spencer Arigetti or if everybody's been so caught up in, you know, uh, what we're seeing every every day on the mound. But I mean, maybe it's an innings thing. But I mean, e even a Spencer Arigetti that could give you two innings to piggyback off of these crap starters so your bullpen doesn't have to maybe do as much work you know at the end of the season and you're not having to rely on you know whoever in the middle innings which you know these days it's uh Phil Maton which is you know he doesn't quite look the same as he did early in the year so I I don't know but I just that that one kind of stumps me and you know people might I don't know if he's on the 40 man or not if he's not on the 40 man, I'm sure, there are, is. I'm sure there are guys that you can kick off the 40 man and they're not worried about losing, you know, or whatever, because Spencer Aragetti's, you know, now on the 40. I don't, this I don't is think. his fourth year in professional baseball. 
He threw 24 innings in 20, 13 and two-thirds in 21, 106 in 2022, and he's thrown 124 and two-thirds this season in two different leagues. So that's Texas League and then Pacific Coast League, right? So you're he's kind of on that same trajectory, right, that Hunter Brown and J.P. France had been coming into this season where he'd seen a pretty steady increase in years. And so that's that's a great question for Dana Brown. But if I was down there every day, I definitely would have been asking that. Yeah, just something I thought about. Well, we will be back for the Texans and the Jags live post-game show. So stay tuned for that. Thanks a lot, Sean. Thanks, man. Had fun. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Hey, don't forget to support us by subscribing and commenting on YouTube. You can always listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about us and share our show links on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.